his long ears back and forth with interest at every movement and sound in the waking world around him. He was as fresh as his master was frowsy, having spent the night in what was becoming his accustomed stall in the bunch of grapes. Deep doings I had too, my boy, while you were asleep, James said aloud, reaching forward to turn Nez Carey's one wayward lock of mane back to the proper side. But I came out of it rather well. A hundred guineas up on the week's play. Nezcari knuckered in response to the voice, and took it as permission to break into a trot, and James checked him gently with a smile at the old horse's sudden skittishness. Must be spring, he remarked. He turned into the village street, where already the houses were astir. Doors and windows were thrown open on the fine morning. The smell of cooking issued from some of the houses, while at others the menfolk had brought out wooden stools to sit in the early sunshine and break their fast with bread and beer. Hens and geese, just let out, were everywhere, ruffling their feathers and stretching their necks in raucous contention as they re-established social order. A family of ducks crossed the road in single file, heading flat-footed for the stream. A grey cat on a sunny window ledge blinked and paused in the first serious wash of the day as Nezcari's shadow crossed her. A dog ran out and barked at him, and then grinned foolishly and wagged its tail in self-congratulation. Stone the tailor was already at his work, sitting on a stool in the doorway of his cottage, one foot up on the doorframe to support the cloth he was stitching. His two little girls, identical twins, sat on a mounting stone outside, eating cold porridge with their fingers out of wooden bowls, the rhythm of their hands never faltering, while their round eyes followed James's progress. At another house, Weaver Batty's young wife, suckling her baby, came to the door to shake out a cloth with her free hand. She smiled and blushed as James passed, turning her shoulder, not with embarrassment, but with the grace of a simple modesty. Most of the village folk worked for the Moorland family in one way or another, some on the land, others in the various processes of the manufacture of Moorland fancy. Half the houses he passed had a loom in the attic or in a back room, and most of the women spun wool in between their tasks, either on a wheel or increasingly on a hand jenny. There was no sign here of the poverty that one heard about farther south, the enclosures carried out in his father's time had created not less, but more, and more regular work in the fields. The demand for woolen cloth had grown slowly but steadily, and nearby York, a wealthy and sociable city, provided plenty of work for domestic servants, and a steady market for meat and milk, bread and vegetables, shoes, clothes, furniture, and artefacts of all kinds. It was a prosperous area, and the Morlands were well-respected landlords. Edward was esteemed as a fair master, and a knowing one with stock, and James's indiscretions were forgiven him partly for the sake of his good looks and personal charm, but mostly because he was considered the best horseman in the ridings. James's wife, Mary Anne, who was nominally mistress of Morland Place, had not the knack of making herself liked. But their daughter Fanny would inherit all when she was twenty-one, and those folk who mourned the old mistress, James's mother Jemima, told themselves that Fanny would be just like her. James wondered if they deceived themselves. 
He could not help knowing that Fanny was horribly spoiled. Edward pointed it out to him daily, and his own judgment could not deny that she did behave very badly sometimes. But she was not yet eight years old, after all, and he trusted that she would grow out of it. James adored her, and found it impossible to deny her anything. In his better moments he realized that it might well be his indulgence which made her so ungovernable. James had a son, too, though he often forgot the fact, for Henry, two years old and unbreached, was still the property of nursery maids. Besides, as the boy owed his existence to purely financial considerations, the necessity for a male heir to inherit Mary Ann's father's cotton mills, James found it difficult to think about him as part of his family. He seemed as exclusively a Hobbsbourne as Fanny was a Moorland.